Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston. And I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys. Excited to be back from vacation. Had a week off. It was great. I hit Old Cape Cod, Dennisport in particular. And we're on to our next one. But I just wanted to do some housekeeping stuff. We're getting a big response from our episode on the Phoebe Prince case. That's the bullying case that ended in suicide in 2010. And gotten a lot of emails on the case. And reoccurring theme in these emails is that, yes, there is a correlation between the Phoebe Prince case and the Michelle Carter case. Definitely two bullying cases. But I think it just goes to show you how difficult it is to get a conviction regarding somebody else's suicide. Michelle Carter was convicted, but that conviction was overturned on appeal and she's out of jail now. And I think it was shaky ground where she was convicted at any rate, but she did some time in jail and she certainly deserved it. Both of these cases, the Michelle Carter case and the Phoebe Prince case, have moved the ball forward in terms of legislation regarding bullying. And that's, I think, definitely a good thing. First, it was the Phoebe Prince case where these kids were prosecuted. That kind of showed the nation that this is no BS anymore. They ultimately all took plea bargains. And I think they would have beaten the charges at trial, most of the charges anyway. And some new laws did spring from that case, the Phoebe Prince case, some anti-bullying legislation. But the Michelle Carter case, I think, really brought this home. The Massachusetts State Legislature did pass a law called Conrad's Law, and I just don't know if it's been put into effect yet because of this COVID madness. Things are slowly getting back to normal, or what passes for normal at the Massachusetts State House, but I really don't know what's going on with Conrad's Law. Hopefully it helps this bullying situation. I just don't know if bullying can be fixed at the law enforcement level. It has to be enforced at home, right? That's always been with us, and I think it always will be in some form or fashion. But those two cases have always hit home with me, Phoebe Prince and Michelle Carter. Both two dead people, right? And there's just really no reason for it. It's just so meaningless. All right, guys, we'll get on to our next case. This is the case of Lisa Zygert, Z-I-E-G-E-R-T. And this case comes to us via... Agawam, Massachusetts, in 1992. It's another horrific case, which never had to have happened. We do have to jump back into the time machine today. I just find it quite odd. 1992 is 29 years ago. I remember like it was yesterday. But I have to say, I don't remember this case. I didn't remember it when it happened, because it happened in Agawam, and I lived in Boston. So... Anything outside the 495 belt, the technology belt, they call it here in Massachusetts, 
it's kind of like a different country, right? It's still the state of Massachusetts, but it's kind of viewed differently from Bostonians and from people inside the belt to people in Western Massachusetts. And to my friends in Western Massachusetts, you know I love Western Massachusetts, but my statement there is true. So Agawam, Massachusetts is a beautiful small town right on the Connecticut border in Western Massachusetts. It's the home of Six Flags. I think it's Massachusetts' only real theme park. So Agawam's southern border is actually Southwick, Connecticut, and to the north, it's Springfield, Massachusetts. I think Springfield is the second largest city in Massachusetts. I was actually kind of shocked to see the population of Agawam was about 28,000 people. It's kind of a large landmass, but it has that small town feel. And downtown Agawam is beautiful, just like you'd expect in a Norman Rockwell painting. All right, guys, so that's Agawam, Massachusetts, a beautiful town. Let me tell you a little bit about Lisa Zygert. I've heard it pronounced Zygert, Zygert. It's Z-I-E-G-E-R-T. If I remember correctly, Lisa moved to the Agawam area, to Agawam itself, from Holyoke, Massachusetts, as a baby. And the family consisted of mom, D. Zygert, and a sister, Lynn Zygert, and her married name is Rogerson. And I've seen them on a few specials. There's been some Dateline stuff, uh, True Crime Daily, stuff like that. I'm going to link some stuff in the show notes if you want to take a look. But it was kind of stereotypical, small town family. They do the public school route. And Lisa is a great student, great kid, lights up every room she comes in, not a problem. And she goes off to college, studies teaching, and returns to Agawam Middle School. Now, this is where I believe Lisa really hit her stride. In one of these specials, they interview a school counselor who worked with Lisa, and she was just one of those people who had found exactly what she wants to do and what she needs to do. They're the type of people, when they leave a job interview, the interviewers are looking at themselves, yeah, we have to bring her on, and that's what happened. She's listed as a teacher and an assistant teacher at Agawam Middle School, And I think she was on the way, I don't know, I think they used to call it student teaching and all that, but I think she was on her way to a full-time position at Agawam Middle. And everybody who worked with her could see the light in this kid, you know? She enlivened the place when she came in, and I saw some of her students interviewed, and they loved her, they adored her. And she worked with some special needs kids, and that's a hell of an endeavor. What a commitment from a 24-year-old kid. And I call her a kid. I know she's a woman, only because I'm 50-some-odd, right? So she's committed, passionate, and she needs some more money. So she picks up a part-time job after school from about 5 p.m. to about 9 p.m. at a place called Brittany's Cards and Gifts. If you want to envision this place, it's like a local Hallmark store, and it's located in a busy section. It's not isolated or anything like that. All right, guys, I'm going to take you up to April 15th, 1992. And I gotta tell you, it's a harrowing tale, so you're gonna have to brace yourselves a little bit here, guys. All right, so April 15th, 1992 was a Wednesday. Lisa Zygert had completed two days of work. This was her third, it's hump day. 
Thursday's the next day, and the day after that's Friday. And she didn't work weekends at the gift shop, at Brittany's card and gift shop. So I'm sure she was looking forward to the weekend. But today's Wednesday, and she's heading to work. She leaves Agawam Middle about 4.30. She typically got into the middle school early and did some of her work before the students arrived. I'm not exactly sure how early Lisa left the house in the morning, but she was still home with mom and dad. And mom and dad, George was the dad, Diane or Dee Dee was the mom. And there's a brother, David, I'm not sure how old he was at the time of this, but Lynn was a 17 year old, I believe senior in high school. And Lisa had naturally graduated college and come back to Agawam. And she was still living with mom and dad. And that might be one of the reasons for the part-time job, you're 24. You're looking to get on with your life, get out of mom and dad's house, right? So I'm sure that was on her horizon. So normal family life, normal school day, leaves for work early, gets in early, does her work, and hits the door at 4.30, and it's on to Brittany's card and gift shop located just 10 minutes away. An everyday thing, right? It's Wednesday. You're kind of grinding through the week. It's hump day. But it's just before Easter Sunday, and they're expecting some traffic at the card shop. Because like I said, think along the lines of Hallmark for this place. It was actually a pretty nice little shop. So Lisa gets set up at work and all this, and she's, you know, manning the store, basically. And her sister stops in. Her sister Lynn stops in. It was a pretty frequent event. They could chat a little bit while Lisa cleaned up or checked a customer out and all that. But frequently... Lisa would be there by herself. So according to Lynn, they have a pretty easy, breezy conversation. You know, they chat, and then Lynn goes about her business. Lisa stays at work and is, I'm sure, looking towards quitting time. So that's the last time Lisa Zygart is seen alive, and that was about 6 p.m. on that Wednesday. The following day at about 8.45, a woman described as a co-worker and alternately as the business owner, Sophia Maynard arrived and noticed the open sign, you know, indicating that the business was still open. It was a flag and it was still flying. And that was curious to her, but she thought to herself that Lisa may have come in early to get the balloons and bundles together for the upcoming Easter holiday, which they expected to be busy. Now, Sophia Maynard initially struggled with this realization that it has to be Lisa because she knew Lisa was due to be at her teaching job in the morning, right? So she goes in there and she's immediately relieved to see Lisa's purse and stuff on the counter. I think there was a drawing nearby. Lisa was a budding artist. And she's like, oh, good, she is here. But then she can't find her. She goes into the storeroom. There's signs of a struggle. And Miss Maynard loses it and she runs right to the police. Lisa was simply nowhere to be found. And the Agawam Police Department, to their credit, immediately see that this is at a minimum an abduction. Her car is still there. Her car keys are still present. There's signs of a struggle. So what they do is they alert the state police and a short time later, the FBI, because this is a kidnapping and kidnapping is a federal crime. And the FBI just has so many more resources than the local PD. So I think that was a good move. And also don't forget that Agawam's southern neighbor 
is Southwick, Connecticut. So if this actually turned out to be a kidnapping, it'd be pretty likely to be FBI involvement in this anyway. So it is the multi-state jurisdiction, federal jurisdiction and all that. So it's always good to have the FBI's help, especially on the missing persons case. I often criticize police departments for not acting fast enough in a missing persons case, but in this case they did. They ramped up a search involving the police and then civilians pretty quickly. I mean, this happened at about quarter to nine. They were alerted and they were searching that day. So they organized this pretty quickly. But time went on and the Zegard family immediately became sick to their stomachs. They knew something was wrong. This wasn't ordinary. This was so far out of character for Lisa that the family was literally just sick. They participated in all the searches and naturally opened up their home to any type of investigation. They just wanted Lisa back. That's all they wanted. And I'm sorry to say that was not to be. Four days after she went missing, Lisa was found. She was found relatively close by by a guy walking his dog. And this was Easter Sunday, folks, the moment they were preparing for at the card shop and the Holy Resurrection, right? I'm afraid to tell you that Lisa had been savaged and discarded. She had been sexually violated and stabbed multiple times in multiple locations. It was a horror show. Those that saw the crime scene have never been the same, and a lot of them still refuse to talk about it to this day. So as you can imagine, the Zygot family was completely devastated, and the town of Agawam was completely on fire. They do protect their own in this town, and it's a small town, and everybody knows everybody. And they knew the Zygarts, and they're known as good people, just like the guys down the street, also good people, right? It's a nice town, and they were devastated. So sometimes when investigations go on for a long period of time, members of the public and even members of the press start putting their own conspiracies together, things that cannot be dismissed out of hand by the police department. And the police department doesn't have the time or the inclination to dispel every rumor in town. But this is what happened in this case. It had gone on for a while, and now people are trying to fill in the blanks. Who could it be? Well, the general public came up with some grand conspiracy theory that it was Ed Borgatti. And Ed Borgatti was Lisa Zygert's boyfriend's roommate, and they were all friends. And this was so off base, but this is what happens when there's not an investigative narrative. And the police, like I said before, don't have time to dismiss every false lead. But the fact of the matter was that Borgatti was the son of a detective on the Agawam Police Department. So now they go to immediately to cover-up mode, right? And it's just nonsense. This kid, Borgatti, was working at a restaurant that night with about 50 or 60 witnesses. And he worked the front of the house in the back of the house, so meaning in the kitchen and in the front. So everybody knew where this kid was. But because the police aren't in the business of dismissing subjects or suspects, they couldn't really comment. And this went on and on for this poor guy. And these rumors around town started pretty quickly. So he's endured 
more than 25 years of this speculation, and he was treated pretty badly around town. And again, Agawam's a small town, so he got the raw end of this deal. There was DNA in this case, right? And it was a testable amount, and it was found on Lisa's skirt. And this will prove to be a saving grace, but at that time, DNA, I don't even think DNA was being used in a courtroom. I think for the first time it was used in the O.J. Simpson case in 1994. So it was on the scene, and they did collect it, so that's good news. But how much they knew about it, I mean, we are light years ahead of where we were in the 90s in terms of DNA. So Lisa was found on Easter Sunday, 1992. She was laid to rest a short time later, and in something that really warmed the family's heart, thousands of people showed up in the pouring rain in order to pay their respects to Lisa. That's how loved this kid was. You know, politicians, generals don't get that these types of turnouts. So the family was a little flabbergasted, and I think it warmed their hearts a little bit. So it may have taken some of that edge off, that nasty grief that they must have been going through. So the police investigation was going on all the time during the funeral and all that. They'd never stopped. I think they said they had dedicated 5,000 personnel hours to this case in the first few weeks alone. And at least initially, their efforts seemed to be bearing fruit. Let me tell you about a couple of the tips they got. So the first tip that the cops come up with is a woman who had actually patronized the gift shop where Lisa was working. And she said that at about 8.20, she went in and patronized the establishment, spoke to Lisa, everything appeared fine. And she even had a date and timestamp receipt to go along with her purchase. So now... The cops can narrow down. She was alive at least at 8.20 p.m. and maybe a little while after that. The second tip seems to prove that Lisa was gone by 9 p.m., so from around 8.20 to 9 p.m. That is the window of opportunity here, and this is what the police think when the crime went down. The woman came into the shop and found the store open, but nobody was there. She waited around looked around a little bit, and at a certain point she heard some banging in a storeroom, so she was certain somebody was probably going to come out in the next few minutes. And when they didn't, this woman, I think she probably was fuming a little bit and said, okay, I'm going to get out of here. Service is horrible here. What she didn't know was that was Lisa struggling. The police believe she was being abducted at that point because there were signs of a struggle in the storeroom, and that's where the banging came from. And the police later found Lisa's shoe prints or boot prints on the door to the storeroom. And that's what they believe that woman heard was her trying to get somebody's attention with this noise. And if that woman had only called the police, I don't know if this would be a different ending or what. It's not this woman's fault. It's an everyday thing, right? But if she called the police or let somebody know, eh, maybe it's a different outcome. I'm not sure. But the woman does the right thing, and as soon as she hears about what happened at the card shop, she goes to the Agawam police station and tells her story. So now at least they have this time frame from like 8.20 to 9 p.m. That's when they know when to focus on, right? What time to focus on at any rate. So something at least statistically strange is another person saw this crime being committed. 
This woman was driving and she was stopped at the intersection of Route 75 and Adams Street at what she estimated to be about 9.15. Well, at the intersection, she saw a car with a man driving and a woman struggling in the back seat and they were fighting. And this woman attributed it to teenagers messing around. But the car drove off towards the woods, relatively close to the card shop where Lisa was abducted. And the reason I say that is statistically odd is, you know, that woman in the card shop heard the banging. She had an opportunity to stop this. This woman saw something else that was kind of alarming and didn't call the police. Again, would that have changed the outcome of this case? Probably not. This guy was a lunatic, but man, there was an opportunity there. Two opportunities. Statistically, you don't get that. All right, guys, previously I've talked about Ed Borgatti. He was the roommate of Lisa's boyfriend, and he somehow got implicated in this through the rumor mill. And I think specifically because his dad was a cop, so naturally they go to cover-up mode and protecting the cop's kid. That was nonsense. But I'm going to tell you about somebody else who plays a large part in this case and who could probably rightfully be described as a hero in this case. Her name is Joyce McDonald. Joyce was from the greater Agawam area. There's not a lot of facts about the McDonald family out in the public narrative right now, but she was one of 10, and her dad was in the organ consulting business. Sounds a little strange to me, but that's what's been reported. So they were kind of itinerant. They'd followed dad all over the country for work. She was one of 10. Again, lived in Greater Agawam. I don't know exactly where. The family did have some battles with alcohol, and that did include Joyce as well. Joyce graduated from high school in the area and entered the restaurant service business, and that is where she came into contact with a gentleman by the name of Gary Shiera. S-C-H-A-R-A. I believe I'm pronouncing it correctly, but... Please feel free to correct me if I'm not. So these two intersect, they believe, in the restaurant industry somehow, some way. They begin dating and get married pretty quickly after. And Gary is a local guy who kind of lives beneath his potential. Everybody says he's a smart guy, a nice guy, all this, but he's just below the surface. He's got kind of menial jobs when his intellect's a little bit higher than that. He doesn't have a lot of professional drive. He just takes job after job and life as it comes. Nothing wrong with that. I think we all know people like that. Gary was described in high school as a person who really didn't stand out in anything. He was moderately athletic and followed the local sports teams and all that, but he never tried out for a team. He was into Dungeons and Dragons, Batman and all that. So he was kind of a low-key kid, but he had a crew of friends, and he did fine. He was not a troublemaker, nothing to make you think that this kid could go off the rails at a certain point, right? All right, so sometime in the late 80s, early 90s, Gary Shahara and Joyce McDonald get married. She's now Joyce Shahara. I don't know if this was an emergency-type marriage, but they had a baby pretty quickly. And I think things were going okay for a short time, but I do think Joyce was drinking and Gary was Gary, but they broke up. 
the timeline is hazy on this, but they broke up around the time of Lisa's disappearance or just before, just after. I'm not entirely sure. But either way, at a certain point, Joyce takes their infant son and runs from Massachusetts. And she's scared. And the police are pursuing her as like a parental kidnapping situation. But she says she's not bringing that baby back. And some people, even members of her own family, dismiss her as a crazy drunk. But in 1993, she's going through the divorce process with Gary. And she asked her divorce attorney to contact the Agawam Police Department and relay her feelings that her husband, Gary Shara, was in fact the killer of Lisa Ziegert. I've heard two explanations as to why Joyce believed this. One comes from her side of the family, and it is that Joyce had discovered some writings of Gary's or some type of diary, and that made her think that he was involved in the murder, hence her quick departure from Gary's life. The second theory I've heard as to why Joyce ran like that was because he just had an unhealthy obsession with this case. Every time it was on, he'd stop, listen, look. So yeah, Joyce did have some problems with alcohol, and she was frightened. People said she was visibly frightened of Gary, and nobody could understand why he was this meek, mild, kind of a goofball character, right? So Joyce makes this accusation through her attorney, and it gets to the Agawam Police Department. They just don't seem to take it seriously. And it was a good move using an attorney to do that because it's some type of buffer. But they didn't get around to actually interviewing Gary until 2002. So, yeah, you heard right. In 1993, they had Gary Shahara's name and didn't investigate because I think they investigated Joyce Shihara and she was probably known to the cops and she had a record of being a bit of a loon, right? She had an alcohol problem. And this is an ex-husband. That happens all the time. And it happened previously in this investigation where people with access to grind will say, yeah, it was my ex-husband, just to get them jammed up three, six months. You know how it is. But she was telling the truth, guys. She was telling the truth. So if you remember at the beginning of this podcast, I commended the police for their search, but they really dropped the ball here. I know they had a lot of work to do, but at a certain point, a year goes by. 18 months, you don't circle back to every tip. Let's look into this a little more. She believes this for a reason, and she was moderately coherent. She was drinking a lot and ended up losing custody of her son, and her life was a complete spiral of alcoholism, and the police just didn't give that one thing enough credit, so they kind of dismissed her as a drunken loon. So all these years go by, and this guy, Ed Borgatti, Lisa's boyfriend's roommate was still under this cloud of suspicion, and it was horrible. And the police knew he didn't do it. And just on a humanitarian level, after all these years, after five years, ten years, where you know this guy's innocent, tell the public, just have some sympathy for the guy. They never did that. They never did it. So the whole town, all the way up through the mid-2000s, believes that Ed Borgatti committed this crime, and it's being covered up by the Agawam and state police. It was complete nonsense, but the detectives were still on the job, 
And by 2016, a company called Parabon Technologies comes on scene and they've made leaps and bounds in DNA technology. They are the go-to company right now. They've had a million breakthroughs. And through this, they did have enough DNA to be tested and they sent it to Parabon Technologies in 2016. And this company is so advanced, guys. It's just so impressive to me that they could give an identifier all the way down to where the person is from. He was a white, dark-skinned, dark hair, Western European. I think that's how they did it. And they actually gave a computerized composite sketch to the police, one at the age of when this event happened, 1992, and one how the person would look now. And I got to tell you guys, this is when the curtain started to close on Gary Shiara. It looked just like him, not just like him. He had gained more weight in the present tense than he had in the past, but both of them looked pretty close to Gary, I'd have to say. So by this point in the investigation, they had spoken to Gary, and it was in 2002. He had come into the police station at the request of some new detectives on the case. They were re-interviewing everybody, but this wasn't a re-interview for Gary. It was his first one, and he was supremely suspicious. He shows up. He won't touch anything. He won't take a glass of water, a bottle of water. He's got gloves on. And then he refuses to take a DNA test, citing his fear of being cloned. Yes, this guy says, I'm afraid of being cloned. So I think that checks some boxes for these detectives. And he went a little bit higher on the list. There were others on the list as well. I believe there was a list of like 11 suspects who refused to give DNA. And I believe if you did give your DNA at the time and you were cleared, you'd just be taken off the list. But there was like 11 people who did not comply with that request. And Gary was among them. And Guliani, the district attorney in that area, formulated a plan to go to a grand jury using the results from Parabon and the fact that these people had refused to take testing. And they got a court order. They did receive a court order to test those who had previously refused DNA testing in this case. It was a pretty impressive bit of legal maneuvering. It was actually a fishing expedition. I know they narrowed it down in the Parabon thing, narrowed it down even further. But to just get a judge to say it's okay to take DNA from 11 people most of which are going to be innocent, that takes a lot of legal maneuvering, and it was a good job by the district attorney. So I believe Gary Shihara was second on the list, and the state police go to his house in West Springfield where he was living. He now, you know, had been fully divorced and had a new girlfriend and all that, but he was living with a roommate, and he was out when the state police arrived at the house, and they dropped off the demand for DNA testing. He was going to have to show up at a certain point and provide it. His roommate ended up calling him. And this is when Gary Shihara sits down and writes three letters. Well, that's not actually true, at least according to the timeline. First, he goes to his girlfriend's house. It was a relatively new relationship, I guess. Her name was Noel, and I know I'm going to butcher this, Deslaurias. D-E-S-L-A-U-I-E-R-S. -E -E and if that name sounds familiar, there is a, 
FBI agent of some renown in the Boston office, and he worked on the Boston Marathon bombing case. And that was Noel's brother. And Noel did seem to be happy with Gary, and that made the rest of the family happy. And he wasn't a crazy lunatic, and Noel liked him enough, so that made the family happy. But he goes to her house after the state police visit his apartment, and he asks to spend the night. And Noel finds that a little strange because Gary wasn't a super intimate boyfriend. He very infrequently wanted sex. He was happy to just be around her, and she didn't want to rock the boat. He didn't drink. He didn't do drugs. He was stable. So she just kind of took it as it was, and that was their relationship, mostly platonic. But Gary asked that night to stay over her, her house And yeah, sure, she's looking forward to it. And they do that. She leaves for work early the next morning. I believe she's a nurse. And Gary stays in bed a little bit. And she comes home later in the afternoon to find three letters. And they're just the craziest letters you've ever seen in your life. And I'll put them in the show notes. So the three letters are a full confession to Lisa's murder And one is a last will and testament, and one is a note to Noel. All right, so Gary writes these letters on September 14, 2017. And I'll read you a little bit. So portions of the three letters, I'll excerpt them here. One of them really stands out. Gary says, I've never really been or even felt normal. From a very young age, I was fascinated by abduction and bondage. I could never keep it too far from my mind for long. On that fateful day, I let myself do something terrible. The letter the Springfield Republican calls the confession is probably the longest. And I'll read you a little bit of it. Gary says, I've been dreading the day I need to write this letter for almost as long as I can remember. First off, I love you. I hope you never doubt that. Now the hard part. You're going to find out some awful things about me today. They will tell you I abducted something redacted and murdered a young woman approximately 25 years ago. It is true, all of it. Gary goes on to say, I had no intention of killing her when I grabbed her, but events spun out of my control, and in the eyes of the law, it is all the same. I have never regretted anything so much. I was young and headstrong and foolish. Emphasis on the last part. Gary continued in his confession. I always knew it would catch up with me one day. And now it has. I received a text from my roommate last night that the state police were at the house with some important papers for me. That will be a warrant to take DNA and that will send me away for life. I'm still trying to decide, even as I write this note, if I have the courage for that or if I will take the coward's way out. Either way, I apologize again. So much. Gary continues in his confession. I also never did anything of the like again. I hated what happened. I despised myself. I thought of turning myself in hundreds of times over the years, but I am truly a coward. Today it will end. I will take my own life or face the music, as it were. So Gary's girlfriend, Noelle, Deslauriers saw these letters. They were at her house. She brought them immediately, I believe, to a state police barracks 
on the way, she spoke to her brother, the FBI agent, and he just advised her to comply fully. And she did. And she gave up all the information that she had on it. And she was heartbroken. She loved Gary on some level and couldn't believe that she was duped into this and she didn't see who he was. Noel would later go on to say that at times, I think they went into the Boston Marathon after it had been bombed, and so there was increased security screening, and Gary would just go white. He always thought when he was around police, they were trying to take his fingerprints or his DNA. So he lived in fear of that. And when he was in Boston with Noel, she said during some type of backpack screening, I don't know if it was on the train or just on Boylston Street, Gary went sheet white. He thought they were looking for him, and now she put all that together. It's crazy, right? One of the letters Gary wrote was basically an apology to the Zygarde family, and it was kind of weak tea to me, but he did apologize. He does have regret for this stuff. And you want to know what? His actions were so severe, it doesn't matter. In my mind, this is a death penalty case. Gary belongs in the electric chair. I'm sorry, he just does. This is a death penalty case. He used his physical brute strength against someone else just in order to rape and kill them, right? And now he expresses some regret. He didn't have enough regret to turn himself in. He should be in the electric chair, but he's not. This is Massachusetts. And he's currently incarcerated for life at the Norfolk Correctional Center. And if you want a good laugh, Google two things. Google Howie Carr plus Lifers Club, and that'll show you the hard time that Gary is doing these days. It's basically a joke. So when you get life, you got to try to make your prison life as cushy as possible. So there's a Lifers Club at Norfolk State Prison, and they make life as bearable as possible. Birthday parties, Christmas parties, all kinds of nonsense. So they try to feather their own nest. They're convicts. That's what they do. It's not their fault. It's the fault of the state of Massachusetts that it's allowed. So Gary eventually pleads guilty to the murder. The kidnapping, rape, and aggravated assault charges were ultimately dismissed because the statute of limitations had run out on those charges. So the only thing left was murder. And he received life without parole for the murder. It just seems this case could have been solved so much more quickly if they had interviewed Joyce McDonald quicker, if they took her more seriously. And I know the detectives in this case have to be kicking themselves, but they did end up with an arrest. They got some justice for Lisa. So that's about all you can ask for, I guess. All right, guys, I'm going to leave you there. Have a good weekend, and I'll see you on the flip side. On to the next one.